have some visitors with us this morning, and I didn't need to mention that we do have a, a CMA official worker visiting us this morning, uh, Retha. So uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, it's always kind of fun to see. We have other visitors here this morning, and if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here with us. Um, we do have visitor bags for you out in the front, so before you leave, please make sure you get one of those. And uh, just a quick reminder for the membership, but also anyone who wants to uh, come, we have our, our annual church meeting next Sunday uh, following the church service. And, uh, but during the church service, we're going to do something a little different. Um, during my sermon, I'm going to be talking about um, Oasis Church and what we're going to be heading towards and, and looking forward to. Uh, so you won't want to miss that. And if, even if you're a visitor, and you're just, if that's a great opportunity next week for you to find out what uh, Oasis Church is all about. Uh, but basically what we're all about is we want to be obedient to Scripture, particularly the Scripture that tells us to uh, make disciples and to teach our children uh, the things of the Lord. So, uh, some of you may be thinking, where's the communion going to come? It's going to be after the sermon, so we're not forgetting about it, although I almost did. But uh, we'll get right into the message as we've been going through this Gospel of Luke. Um, and we're going to be uh, at the end of the chapter one this morning. Um, but if, if someone were unable to speak, for nine months, and then could finally speak, what would they say? And now, you and I could try to imagine this, right? Uh, nine months of inability to speak would be, for some people, like a pure torture, right? Um, <laughs> if we suddenly became unable to speak, at first we may think that the, uh, we may be concentrating on the inability to think about things or speak about things that are urgent or necessary, you know, not being able to tell someone they're in danger or letting someone know you needed help, something like that. And certainly for those who are of a sociable nature, being unable to speak and take part in a conversation would be a, a very difficult thing. Some of you have witnessed this. When I was a boy, my great uncle, Lawrence, had a stroke and lost his ability to communicate. And when we went to visit him, he would try to tell us something. He'd try to be part of the conversation, but all that would come out was a sort of stuttering sound, and there was no way to figure out what he was trying to say, except in some cases you could get him to answer a yes or no question. But this only worked for him to answer if, if you knew what he, if he knew, if you were talking about what he wanted to talk about. If he wanted to communicate something he was thinking about and you couldn't figure out what it was, then even the yes or no didn't work. And he would keep trying to say something. But again, just a stuttering sound and, and the tears would start flowing down his face. And I remember as a boy having such sadness and compassion for Uncle Lawrence. Imagine having family come to visit. In our case, we traveled an hour or so just to visit. And, and then... Imagine being visited and not being able to converse. When we observe someone struggling with the effects of a disease or other medical problem, uh, we certainly see the effects of the curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, evil and sickness 
entered the world. And so when we have someone in our lives who can't talk because of a stroke or can't remember because of dementia or can't get around because of some other physical issue, there's a sense of wrongness, isn't there? We don't like to see deformities or see a loved one suffer. And yet, when we really get down to brass tacks, as they say, all of this is due to the curse brought on the world due to sin. Sometimes the ailments people have are just inherited because of the curse. But sometimes people do suffer as well for their own sin or as a consequence of their own actions. We do all sorts of things that harm our health or risk injury. So sometimes we must take responsibility for what happens to us. Now, we can't always know this for a fact. Sometimes it's obvious when someone's suffering because of an action they took. An example of this I've seen a lot is meth addicts. They lose their teeth. There's a consequence, right? There's other health problems as well. But we can't always be sure if someone is sick because of something they did or is it just they're subject to the curse like the rest of us. In fact, Jesus made a point of this with a blind man he healed. This particular blind man was blind from birth. And Jesus made it plain that this man was not blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, but so that God would be glorified when he was healed. So we should be careful not to judge those who are sick and hurting, since we cannot always know all the factors. And certainly in the case of Zechariah, which we've seen, his lack of faith, which was a sin, was clearly the scriptural reason given for him losing his speech temporarily. And in case you missed the sermon from several weeks ago when we learned about Zechariah, let me give a summary. Zechariah was a priest. He was advanced in years. Scripture says he was a righteous man. Remember that when Scripture says that someone is righteous or blameless, unless they're talking about Jesus, it doesn't mean they were perfectly sinless, because no one is. But Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were blameless, Scripture says, righteous, walking blamelessly, and they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. So Zechariah was a priest, and he was serving in the temple when he had an encounter with the angel Gabriel, and this angel told him that he and Elizabeth would have a son and name him John, who would be great before the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. In verses 16 and 17, it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. But then Zechariah questioned the angel. How shall I know this? And his answer was this. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So now we move forward to our main passage for today, and we find the answer to our question, at least in Zechariah's case, what would a man say who could suddenly speak again after nine months? I wonder what my Uncle Lawrence would have said. 
Think of all the things he wanted to say. How he had tears in his eyes because he had an inability to speak. What would have he said if he suddenly was able to speak again? And sadly, that didn't happen. But Scripture does record for us what Zechariah said. And now we will see what that righteous man said when he was first able to speak after nine months of silence. It's the eighth day after the birth of John. And last week he learned about the naming. But we're going to go back and reread last week's passage and move into this week's passage so that we have the full context. So we're going to start at verse 57 where it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his, old, of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the land of all who the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days and you child will be called the prophet of the most high For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." Now Zechariah speaks. Many refer to this as a song. In fact, there are four of what are referred to as songs in the entire birth story account um, of John the Baptist that we find in Luke. A few weeks ago, we looked at what's called the Magnificat, which is Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord. That was Mary's song. Today we look at the Benedictus, which means praise be or blessed be. And this is Zechariah's song, but really it's more than a song, it's prophetic. Verse 67 says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. Now from this verse, we see once again the importance that Luke gives in his writings to the role of the Holy Spirit in these things. 
Before Jesus came, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned as having a role from time to time in history. In the Old Testament, there were times where the Holy Spirit is spoken of and and especially empowered a person, but it wasn't all the time. But now, believers, those who have put faith in Jesus for eternal life, have the Holy Spirit always as a helper. Jesus promised this, so we know it's true. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance things that have been taught regarding Jesus. Jesus said this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, starting at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, the reason I bring this up is because of what Zechariah is about to say. You see, in these verses of Zechariah's prophecy, we see in verse 67 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that he prophesied. This means he was empowered to say these things and he was empowered by God himself. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God. Just as Jesus is God, just as the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. So Zechariah is being directly empowered by God to say these things. Now, God is perfectly capable of putting words into the mouth of Zechariah and he could make him speak exactly what God wants him to say However, it seems to me that when God uses someone like Zechariah, he's not simply making him a robot or a puppet to recite something. Rather, the Spirit is enabling him to recall things he already knows and put them together in a meaningful way. Jesus said, The Helper will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that he said to his disciples. So, That seems to be how it works when we look at Scripture. Before he was stoned to death, Stephen gave a sermon or a proclamation. It's recorded in Acts 7. I recommend it to you for reading because it gives us clues as to how the Holy Spirit works through believers. So Stephen is on trial, so to speak, and he begins to preach. He's making his defense through preaching. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Scripture teaches us. And he recalls many things about Jewish history, the teachings of Scripture, and so forth, to the point where his preaching of the truth about Jesus angers the Jewish leaders to the point that they kill him. Whenever I read Acts chapter 7, I have to ask myself, did Stephen speak all these things about the gospel, having never heard them? Of course not. He had learned all of those things, and the Holy Spirit empowered him to use the Scripture he knew already in his speech or sermon or whatever you want to call it. And likewise, Zacharias' song, the Benedictus, is full of scriptural allusions. Some scholars have found as many as 33 possible Old Testament references just in this short recitation. And I have 
a point to saying all this about the Holy Spirit and how people are typically empowered to remember and say the things that need to be said. It's usually things they've already known and learned, but now the Holy Spirit is empowering them to bring them out, to speak them out. The normal course of the Holy Spirit empowering someone in the New Testament to speak is that he uses things the person already knows. In other words, what you have learned is what the Spirit helps you recall. So if you want to be ready to give someone an answer for the hope that you have, then you had better know Scripture well so that the Holy Spirit can use you and empower you. Would it make sense if Stephen had never known anything he said before that moment and suddenly he was saying things he never knew? How about Zechariah? Remember, he was a priest. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. Or any of those others who preached in the New Testament. Could Paul have preached so brilliantly at the Areopagus if he had not been so well-versed in Scripture and taught about the gospel from Jesus himself? The answer is no. The Holy Spirit empowered those people and used the knowledge they had learned already to great effect. So why is it that so many people think that they don't need to spend time learning the Bible since they have the Holy Spirit? There have been through all of church history those who we refer to as mystics in the Christian faith. They do not go to Scripture first, but they believe all they need is the Holy Spirit and a spiritual experience. But how can they test the spirits as Paul instructs the church if they don't test it against Scripture? What is the standard to test all things through if the Bible is not the standard? Then what is the standard? Well, how am I feeling today? Do I think that was right or wrong? Well, maybe, maybe not. Well, what do you think? I don't know. No, we have the Scripture as our guide. Thank God for that. Because if every single person in this room were to say on a certain passage, here's what it means to me, here's what it means to me, here's what it means to me, would we possibly know what it meant, meant for sure? No. But we can have certainty because we know that we have Scripture to read for ourselves. And that's a beautiful blessing that we have. And by the way, so many heretical cults have resulted from that attitude. That really, you know, Scripture may be secondary in, in, in importance. And we can listen to so-called modern-day prophets and depend on them to tell us things. So you have cults such as Mormonism, the Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them believing that something newer than the Bible can instruct them. The Holy Spirit is indeed active in the church, but not in the way they would say where they have prophets whose teachings were opposed to the Bible, but rather the Holy Spirit works just as Jesus said, to help believers remember the truths they were taught. And all of this must be constantly subjected to the scrutiny of Scripture, and that includes anything you hear from this pulpit. You should check whatever is preached here against Scripture. If something is not in accord with Scripture, throw it out. And if I speak something against Scripture, throw me out. But how can you know if what the preacher preaches is true unless you look at the Scriptures yourself? And how will you be able to share the faith with others if you have not grounded yourself in Scripture so that you can enjoy the blessing of the Holy Spirit reminding you of what you have learned? And I can attest to the fact that that happens 
I'm not perfect at memorizing every scripture I've ever needed to memorize. You could ask the people who interviewed me for my ordination. I did not remember every single verse perfectly. But you could, you'd be amazed at how many times in the middle of sharing something else, I remember it then. Oh yeah, I remember to go to this chapter and verse. I can't explain it because my memory is not that good. But I've learned it before and the Holy Spirit helps me to remember it. That's what that passage in John 14 is talking about. So Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, draws on all his knowledge of Scripture and all his passion and all his observances of what has happened in the past nine months and all his ponderings as he worked out the message of Gabriel in light of the Scriptures and out of his mouth when it was loosed after nine months of silence, pours out blessing to God. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, if you care about the grammar at all, and probably two of you do, the scholars say that Zechariah is speaking here in what is called prophetic past tense. Isn't that a cool phrase? Prophetic past tense. You know what that means? In other words, he's saying, he's speaking of something that's currently happening or about to happen, but he's saying it as though it's already happened. Remember, Zechariah had received word directly from God's messenger, Gabriel. He has had time over nine months to contemplate all of this in light of the prophecies. No doubt he's been looking over the scrolls to understand better. And now, empowered by the Spirit, he's confidently asserting that what is happening in Israel right now is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. The Lord God of Israel is to be blessed because he has visited and redeemed his people. Prophetic past tense. In other words, you can be sure that this has already been determined. It's just a matter of it playing out. He's visited and redeemed. He has raised up a horn of salvation. And this term comes up in Scripture a few times. The horn represents the strength of an animal. It's not talking about the horn that you honk on your car. It's not talking about a trumpet. It's talking about the horn on an animal. And this terminology tells us uh, that because animals that have strength, the strength is in the horn. If If an animal with horns is getting ready to attack, you get out of the way. The horn of salvation is terminology that tells us this salvation is not simply an escape. It's not simply a defensive maneuver. It's a salvation that results from God going on offense against that which holds people in bondage. And what holds people in bondage? Sin. Ultimately, it's sin. However, it was also people groups that were constantly throughout history at war with the Jewish people, at times even holding them in captivity and at times trying to exterminate them. We know this is true in history. And how could the people be sure that this was going to happen? Verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old. The horn of salvation is terminology of going to war. God was going to war against sin against death itself, and against those who were against his people. And this had been spoken through many prophets, and now it would be proven by his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. This is a good one for memory, by the way. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. What was promised through these prophets? What was God going to do for his people? Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. So God would remember his promise and his covenant to grant us, verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I love the end result there. This is the great hope we have as believers, that we someday will serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness all our days, and how I long for perfect holiness. That is one of the things I look forward to the most. I'm not concerned whether I will get to golf in heaven or whether we'll get to visit other planets or whatever questions people often come up with. What I look forward to is the perfection God promises to those in Christ that someday I will be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and will never sin again. And now Zechariah switches and he starts speaking to the baby John. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Here is a direct link being made between John and the Messiah or the Christ. He's the one prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John would prepare people to receive the ministry of Jesus. How? Verse 77 to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John baptized penitent people. What does penitent mean? Sorry, right? They were sorry for their sin. He preached to them about sin, and then he baptized them into repentance. And this was the way he prepared for Jesus. Verses 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is in many places in Scripture associated with light. Light contrasted to the dark. The sunrise contrasted with the night that's just ending. Second Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the dawn, dawn dies, dawn, the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts. Revelation 22.16, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then Jesus was transfigured. And the scripture says he was light. 
Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And finally, to remind ourselves once again that it is the Advent season, let us close with this familiar passage. One of those many prophecies that I believe Zechariah probably considered as he had that full nine months of not speaking. What better did he have to do than to do some homework, right? Pull out the scrolls and see what they said. And I believe he probably looked at this one. And he probably considered this one when he was giving his Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation when he worshiped God at the celebration of the circumcision of his miracle child. I can't help thinking he must have thought of Isaiah 9, starting at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this indeed Jesus brings light into a dark world in our generation his light is still needed many around us do not know the light of Christ they may not even be aware of the danger they're in they may not realize that they're in the dark So it is that Jesus has charged his followers to teach the world about his gift. The world must be told, who will go? Who will say, as as Isaiah, here I am, send me. Will we take the faith-filled risk of sharing the gospel? Will we depend on the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the work he's called us to do? And yet, how can we expect the Holy Spirit to use us to share the gospel if we do not know it well enough to share? How can we expect his empowerment to do this work if we are waiting for him to teach us but we're unwilling to read the scriptures for ourselves so that we may share it with others? How can we expect the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in Jesus' name to teach us all things and bring remembrance what he has said if we have not learned what he has said? You see, we cannot be satisfied that we know a very few basic things about the gospel and then just say, Holy Spirit, teach me. We are to do our part. God can bring salvation with sometimes only a little knowledge. But he charges those in the faith to be ever-growing in grace. And this happens through the study and application of his word. You are called this morning to action. You are either being called to faith in Christ, if you haven't put faith in him, 
Or if you're in Christ already, you're being called to a deeper faith and to action in learning more in order that you can share more confidently with others. You are to be zealous for what is good. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you shall suffer, or you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray, and the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to prepare to, to take our communion together. Lord, thank you for the word as we're learning it. It's amazing, Lord, to see how you continue to work things out for the good of those who love you. Lord, it's amazing to see how you give us the Holy Spirit who believe in you for our empowerment as a helper, as a counselor, as a guide. Thank you, Lord. May we be diligent followers of you, humbly obeying for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.